Well, I enjoyed thoroughly being with you two weeks ago, and it's great to be back. And thanks this time, Gary, for your welcome. His words were very carefully chosen, weren't they? He didn't say, Stephen Williams was really helpful with Westminster Confession of Faith. He did me good. He said, well, he did me no harm. Notice that? At least that's honest for you. But uh, he compensated for that by uh, mentioning my Welshness. He's right, I'm Welsh by birth and I'm Welsh by conviction. Uh, And I'm glad of that. You work that one out. Now, I am going to read from the passage which is uh, placed here on your order of service. My text will come from a bit earlier in Proverbs, but I'm reading from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. And if the Pew Bibles, I guess this is a Pew Bible, this is page 635, but I don't know, it may come up on your screen. So, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you, but since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Sobering words, aren't they, from the first chapter of Proverbs. And, of course, the, the point of the negatives and the warnings is not to leave you there, but to encourage, to exhort. Don't go this way because it's a bad way. Come this way instead. And so I want to take as a text well-known words from the seventh verse of the first chapter of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. But it's really that first half I want to take. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge, and you will actually find something quite similar in the ninth chapter and verse 10, where we will read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One 
is understanding, but wisdom and knowledge are close together because it's knowledge of the Lord, not head knowledge, knowledge of the Lord and wisdom. So, let me lapse into egotism at the beginning of this uh, address. Uh, Let me do a little bit of attention-seeking and talk about myself, okay? I mean, it's an entertaining kind of subject for me anyway. might bore you stiff, but I'm going to enjoy it. Last year, when the vote was pending for whether or not the UK should leave the European Union, and I still can't work out what has happened, but last year, someone got contacted me and said, we're having a discussion of this, some people who vote who are in favor. This is before the vote itself. Some who are in favor, some who are against. But what is the Christian position? How should Christians think about Brexit? You are teaching theology, and even though you've been teaching Gary Ball, it seems to have done you no harm, quote. <laughs> oh, we quits now. Okay, okay. Okay, we quits now. <laughs> it is good to have you also in the college, Gary. Um, so, so since you're a theologian, you come along and uh, address this subject. Scene number two, still talking about myself. Haven't got to the end yet. Youth ministry class, one of my privileges was, and this will continue into this year, was to teach people who are doing youth ministry. So at the beginning of that, I asked them, what topics do you want to cover? So one of the first ones that came up up was transgender issues. How should Christians think about transgender questions? Now let me give you a third and final scenario. There is a team of people, and I happen to know the person who is heading it up, who are working on artificial intelligence and robotics from a Christian point of view. Should robots be developed as they are being developed for health care? Because as the population gets more and more elderly and there are fewer and fewer people to work, should we train robots in healthcare, very sophisticated ones? So robots should do the things that humans normally do. Should Robots in future give you a cancer diagnosis. This is all coming very quickly. In fact, would it not be possible for me to take my mind and upload it onto robotic hardware, away from the flesh and blood which make me up? So would the robot then become a person? And could that robot live forever? Could my mind somehow be uploaded into a robot. Well, you're supposed to teach theology. Come along and tell us. How do you address all those? And you might have said, well, you know, I don't know why he gives example from himself. Some of those issues maybe you have had to deal with one way or the other, but you've got plenty of others to deal with, and there are lots of them, and they're overwhelming, and what are we supposed to do? The word of the Lord comes and says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What do we do in practice? Well, in practice, I guess very often, I'm sure I speak for you here. When I say we muddle through, we try to muddle through, we sometimes simply ignore issues. I'm not thinking of these these public issues now. I'm thinking of the issues also 
along with the ones I mentioned, I'm thinking the ones that are there in our everyday lives, less spectacular, but every bit as important, more important often. We muddle along, we ignore, we agonize, we go round and round in circles. We select what we do, what shouldn't do, what is wise and what's not wise. We kind of work it out somehow. We can be arbitrary. We cobble together our lives. We patch our lives together into some sort of patchwork, hoping we can make it through. Survival seems to be the name of the game for many of us. And you ask yourself in that situation, is life really meant to be made up of emergency measures? Is my life meant to be one constant attempt to put things together in this life of mine and and just to live with, well, best I can with all this confusion and bewilderment? Where is God in the middle of all this? I'm told there's a Bible here, but where is God? An American comedian said, and I don't think he was trying to be funny at this point, he said, you know how I feel? He said, you know how it is if you sit in a chair and you lean too far forward, so you're almost toppling over, so you lean back in order to get the balance, so you're almost toppling over that way. That's how I live my life all the time. That's how it feels to me. What has Scripture to say to us? Now, in in preparing this, I was in difficulty, I must admit, because in a way, you might say, I'm not going to be very, very specific in certain ways because there are two or three hundred issues we could deal with. And unless you plan to invite me for the next two years to speak morning and evening on issues in Orangefield, and I don't think that's going to happen, then I'm going to have to be in one way general, but I hope nevertheless purposeful and helpful and give us an orientation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or later on the beginning of wisdom. And as I say, they're close because here we're talking about the knowledge of God and the way to walk with him and walk through our lives, the way of wisdom. He doesn't say the fear of the Lord is the sum total of knowledge or of wisdom. It says the beginning of it. And beginning can mean more than one thing here. It might mean the starting point, and that is important, the starting point of all knowledge and wisdom. But it might mean also something very close to it, which is it is the main thing. So either the starting point, this is where we start, or it's the biggest thing. Those two things are both contained uh, as part of the meaning of this text contained in it. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, it has something, a little bit of the uh, echo of the word fear as we usually understand it in our ordinary language. Fear can be a very healthy thing indeed. If if I am walking on a, a rock ledge, which I really shouldn't be walking on, a very narrow one, a dangerous one, to be fearful would be healthy. That would be a good thing. Some of you here will know the Narnia stories. 
And one of them, one of the creatures, says to the children, when they've heard of Aslan the lion but haven't met him, is he safe? Oh, no, says the beaver, not safe. But he's good. Representing Jesus Christ. But fear, although it has a little bit of that, it has a richer dimension in Scripture. It is reverence, revere. That's a word which seems to have gone out of fashion, a habit which has gone out of fashion. Who are revered these days? Well, I suppose only celebrities are revered. But the whole idea of reverence, of actually looking up to, um, even bowing down before in the case of God, that, that seems to have gone. And that is a big part of the meaning of the word fear here. And in the book of Deuteronomy, the fear of God and the love of God go together. The two things are very, very close. To fear God and to love God are much the same sort of thing, which is heartwarming when you think of the depth of God's love and the way he calls us to love him. Parents very often put their little children and their children when they grow up as well in a cruel bind, a cruel dilemma. You're supposed to love me, you know. You're supposed to respect. You're supposed to respect me and love you. I love you. Children are confused by this because their parents tell them they love them and do some things for them, but they're not very dependable and they're afraid of their parents, and how are they supposed to react? They're told to respect and to love, and they, well, they can't really love because of the way they've been treated, but they're told they're supposed to love, so. And they can't respect, actually, sometimes deeply because of the way their parents behave, and it it's becomes a, a sad, bewildering confusion for a child, and the effects go on to adulthood. But in the case of God, it's entirely different, entirely different. Here, he knows us and he loves us at the same time. I would hate to be known fully and properly for who I am unless that person loved me. Then I might just just about be able to put up with it. God loves and knows at the same time. And the fear of the Lord is to know the Lord and to love him in exactly the same way. But how is it going to help us to navigate our way through life? Now, as I say, I don't want to give detailed examples because there are so many possibilities. What I want to do is to encourage us to have a basic disposition and a basic trust because I think many of us, as a matter of fact, have lost confidence in the ability of God and his word actually to steer us, and we have forgotten the first principle of the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge or of wisdom. And let me say three things at this point about how we should dispose ourselves, set our hearts. Firstly, God knows our design. He knows how you and I tick Proverbs talks about sexuality, it talks about speech, it talks about possessions, and in all of it, 
the underlying um, assumption is, well, it's more than assumption to state it, is that God knows how it all works. He's my designer, so he knows how I tick sexually. He knows what patterns of speech are good and bad and right and wrong and wise. He knows precisely what is good for me in the way of possessions or the lack of possessions. He designed me. I may know I'm human without ever reading the Bible. What I don't know is exactly what I'm here for, how I'm supposed to function. I come from Wales, as Gary said earlier, and uh, come from a little town called Aberystwyth in West Wales. Anyone been to Aberystwyth? <clears throat> Excellent. There are some quality people. I, I felt sort of the atmosphere is good and strong and select and elite here somewhere. Okay, <clears throat> Aberystwyth, it's, it's a small town. One day, we have a train station there, and one day, some goats arrived on a truck on a train. And it caused perplexity to the people in the train station because they'd eaten their labels. So people knew they were goats, but no idea where they come from or where they were going to. What exactly do you do with goats that turn up at a railway station? I bet you haven't even thought of that, have you? But isn't that a picture of the human condition? Where have we come from? Where are we going to? What is supposed to be done? I mean, no, I'm a goat. Or I know I'm a human being, but what happens then? Firstly, then, God knows our design. Secondly, God's law is not an imposition on us from above. God's law is a way of letting me know how I'm designed. I think of law as something imposed on me. I have to obey the law. And that seems to be a very irksome thing to do. It's something I don't want to do. Law as a word uh, is something which is quite cold, isn't it? And quite negative and you feel imposed on. But think of the way in which we use the word law in another context. So, for example, I've got my watch here. If I drop it, it's going to go down. Why? Because of the law of nature. That's gravity. But that's not an imposition. That's just the way things work. If I drop the watch down, it goes. It's the law of nature. I was seeing a film not so long ago of a cheetah hitting what um, huge, uh, what, 70 miles an hour or something, keeping it up for about 600 meters. Fantastic. That's the law of its nature. You don't say, oh, it's imposed in it. Poor old cheetah. It's got to go fast or can go fast. No, that is the way it goes. And that's how the law of God is. God's law is a way of telling you and telling me how we work and tick. It's not an imposition from above. It is a description of how we are. It feels like an imposition because of our sin and our waywardness and wrongdoing. But actually, God's law is something which sets us free. Just as the law of a fish as being is to be in water, it's not confined in the water, that's its natural element. So humans are naturally going to flourish when the law of the Lord is the foundation of their lives. Third thing I want to say is that it's interesting that in the book of Proverbs, 
we are presented with the way to live our lives, and there's a lot of detail in it, in terms of the consequences of doing the right thing or the consequences of doing the wrong thing. God does not want us to have to learn the hard way. It's like that with you, with your friends or with your parents. You say to yourself, well, unfortunately, I mean, I don't want this, but they're going to have to learn the hard way because they're only going to see the wisdom and the truth of this which I'm telling them if they follow the other way and then it all goes wrong. Then they'll know. But I wish they didn't. I wish they would take my word for it because I want to spare them. Proverbs talks about consequences. It talks about what happens when you behave a certain way or when you behave, fail to behave a certain way. These are the things that happen. They unravel sometimes later in life, sometimes very late in life. People on their deathbeds regretting what they did or said or did not do or did not say in their teens or their 20s when something was said to them, this is the wise thing to do, but they thought, no, 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 I'll go my own way. And Proverbs takes you through the consequences of your activities. So it's not just God's law, but also in, term, in terms of what God says is right and wrong, but in terms of look what in practice happens when you go the other way or when you go the right way. How your life and mine will be transformed if daily we said to ourselves, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of of wisdom. It really, really would be transformed. Not every question be answered, obviously not. That's why I said it's not the sum total of wisdom, but to begin there, to say, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to set my heart a certain way. I'm going to dispose myself a certain way. Whatever the Lord says, that will be best, however I feel about it. And God gives wisdom. There's a few verses I want to uh, read for you here from the book of James, the first chapter. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault and will be given to him, but when you ask... Or when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all he does. James 1, 5-8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. God doesn't say, oh no, you're not asking me that again. You've asked me tens and tens and tens of times. You still haven't got it. You still haven't worked it out. You're still failing. You're still messing up big time. I'm tired of your prayers and your half prayers and your little pious thoughts shot up to the ceiling somewhere. I'm really tired of them. No, James says God's not like that. He gives generously to all without finding fault. 
God wants our well-being. He has our well-being at heart. If it were not, would he have sent his son to die on a cross? Of course not. But then James says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because if you doubt, you're like a double-minded person. Now, we've got to understand that correctly. James is not just talking there about any doubt. Doubts are natural. Doubts will come to most people, perhaps all people. And Scripture is not at this point saying you mustn't doubt anything at all. Because if the Bible said that, you might say, well, what's the point? You know, here I am uh, praying, and I do have doubts, and now I'm told here by James that if I have doubts, I'm not going to receive anything. In fact, I'm told I'm double-minded. No, the kind of doubt James has in mind, as becomes even clearer later in the book, the kind of doubt is the doubt that arises from a divided heart. Because one half of me wants the way of God, and the other half wants my own way. And my life and yours is very often a tug of war, is it not, between those two things. And if I persist in this double-mindedness, if persistently there is this war raging all the time such that I want God, but I also want other things equally well, then I will doubt when I pray. I won't be be, uh, praying in a peaceful, relaxed spirit. I will not because actually I go one foot here and I go one foot there. And well, I suppose I kind of want the way of God, but I want some other things too. James says that kind of person will, will not receive what he asks for, she asks for. Sometimes God will give because he's so gracious in those situations. But you can't be sure of it. You'll always have that doubt, says James. Don't be deceived, he says. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God's desire is simply that you and I should flourish. That you and I should be what we are designed to be. That's what he wants. And when in the book of Genesis you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I don't mind if you take it literally or you take it as a picture or some sort of combination. That's not our subject tonight. But, but in that account of the tree of good and evil, when God prohibits it, it's not that God is kind of spoil sport, saying you do anything you want, ha, but I'm going to give you a little test here. I'm going to try to mess things up for you by putting something really desirable there and telling you not to have it. I'm going to have some fun like that. No, that's not the meaning at all. The meaning of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is this, that there is another way apart from God's way, and God is warning us not to go that way. If I say to a little child, don't go near that fire. This room, you're welcome to play in this room. Play in it. I want you to play. Enjoy yourself. There's a fire there. Don't go near the fire. It's not because I want to make life hard for the child. No, it's because I know that fire has a quality of burning. And if the child puts his or her hand in the fire, it's damaging. So I say, don't do that. My prohibition is a sign of love. That's how it is also with God. We need, friends, to be steeped in Scripture. 
the scripture sensibly interpreted, the scripture sensibly used. Some people use it in a horribly uh, naive way, unintelligent way. No room for that. But scripture used properly is something which will give you and me a foundation for all the wisdom that we need in our lives, even if not all the answers immediately, all the time. I want to instill confidence in the word of God. Trust God's character. Trust God's competence. His sovereignty over all times, including the third millennium. Trust God's guidance. But it's going to take discipline. It's the long haul we're in for. It's not an instant fix. We're not going to flourish in the Christian life if we're seeking for instant fix. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take time. It's going to take looking out of the years before me. I never know what's going to happen, of course, but preparing, settling down for the long haul. And your, our culture is against all this. Our culture says, look, you know, just go for the instant. Oh, my word, how that mucks up people's lives. But we, as the people of God, are called to have a different orientation. We want and are able to trust the Lord our God. I conclude with two things. Firstly, I think there are two parts of Scripture particularly important in our time. One is the book of Proverbs itself. I would encourage you very strongly to get to know this book. You will find when you begin reading it that it is time and time again instructing you on a whole range of things in life. And you sometimes think, if I'd read that verse earlier, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have got myself into the trouble I got myself into now. I dare to say to you, steep yourselves in the book of Proverbs. But the second great source, of course, is our Lord himself, his life. The Gospels, which tell us how he disposed himself towards people. How he spoke, what he thought was important. What he told us was important for us. We sang earlier about the way, the truth the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness. Just think of that. Never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Oh, if I could live without ever walking in darkness, now that would be something. That's what Jesus says. Proverbs and meditating on the life of Christ will get us a very, very long way as we seek to ground our lives in and base our lives on the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge. I conclude with chapter 1, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. 
He has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Would it be all right if I led us in prayer, um, Gary, or am I usurping, I'm usurping the role of a leader? Okay, okay, let me pray with you. Lord, as we <clears throat> gathered here tonight, there's probably not anyone here who is not struggling with some issue which is causing burden and anxiety. And very often the people around us don't know about those things. Some of them do sometimes, but many of them don't. But you do. And your knowledge of us would be fearsome for us if we didn't know through your son, Jesus, that it's the knowledge of love. You who have created us and know our design, you love us thoroughly. And so you've given us a word that might guide us in our lives. You haven't left us completely rudderless and bereft in this life. We thank you for that, and we pray that we should train ourselves in understanding your word and applying it with a deep, deep-seated belief that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the way of wisdom. Help us, we pray, this night. In Jesus' name, amen.